Hey everybody, it's James here. Thanks for checking out the F1 Funcast. If you're in the mood for something else, check out my new show, the Just for Funcast. This week I'm joined by an old friend, Frank Rivera, as we discuss the 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles live action movie. It was a lot of fun, and I think you'd enjoy it. Check it out, the Just for Funcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's just welcome you right now to the F1 Funcast. It truly is one of the greatest spectacles in racing. Absolutely incredible! Your host for this podcast, Mr. Funcast himself, James Messer. We're watching history and we might as well get on board. And the brains of the operation, Connor, the crew chief, Gagnon. It takes a special kind of person to do what I do. Well, that's lights out, and away we go here on the uh, F1 Funcast with James and uh, Connor. And we're here talking to you today about Ayrton Senna and uh, the Senna documentary that we uh, we both have recently watched. On I've watched it on YouTube. I'm not sure, Connor, did you watch it on YouTube or did you find it somewhere uh, else online? Or it was on YouTube. Yeah, it was. Uh, so, I mean, it's an easy to find documentary about uh, Ayrton Senna if you're a new Formula One fan and you want to uh, learn more about one of the greats and one of the more um, tragic and interesting stories in Formula One history, or if you're, you know, a, an avid fan like Connor and you're you're looking for just, a you know, a great documentary to watch, I would definitely say uh, to check this documentary out. And that spurred on a lot more um, learning and kind of deep diving into Ayrton Senna. And here we are doing a podcast episode about him. So, uh, I don't know, Connor. What was your uh, reaction to the podcast? And what, you know, being more of a more of a longtime F one fan, what's your general feeling about Ayrton Senna and his career? And I don't know. Where do you want to start? I suppose. Um, well, I just want to start by saying that I actually I had my girlfriend watch the documentary with me. Um, she's not a racing fan at all, but she, <laughs> um, as compensation for having me watch like pitch perfect and you know burlesque and other movies like that that i have zero interest in so you got uh, payback I, you got your payback yeah it was a little bit of payback and you know what she found it she found it interesting it's not a movie she would watch like on her own but uh she did find some aspects of it interesting yeah i think um i think that's fair i think it's uh it, it it's one of those stories that if you don't know it it's surprisingly um it seems like Ayrton Senna was one of these. Who would you compare him to, in a in a more you know American pop culture? He was like a tragic one of the greats that never quite, you know, what could have been is more interesting maybe than what was in some ways or the the career cut short. Anyway, we'll we'll, we'll get to all that. Why don't we start at the beginning though? Yeah. With um, I don't want to well spoilers. Maybe I should go back and take some of that out, but. Um, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're going to watch that documentary, I'm sure you know how the story goes. But um, where would you start with uh, Ayrton Senna, his career, Connor, coming from Brazil? Um, what do you think were the important first steps for him getting to Formula One and becoming um, who he was? Well, just like most racers, I think most people that um, had they have aspirations to get to Formula One, um, they usually start out in karting. 
and that's what he did. And he started out with carding, and there's some fantastic footage of his old carding days uh, in this documentary. And you know, his family wasn't terribly well off, but it wasn't poor, um, especially for being uh, from Brazil and in the area of Brazil that they were in. Um, but yeah, he, he started out with carts and he kind of just got his chance and I think three world championships, I'd say he made the most of it. Well, and you know, like at the start of the documentary and he just, he was one of these guys in, in watching it. He just goes, he, he went fast. Like he just, there was a way he raced that seemed kind of an outlier. I don't know if he changed racing or if he was uh, still kind of considered an outlier, but he just, he's like a almost reckless, you know, but he, that kind of, that kind of moxie and, and thrilling type of racing where there was no fear and it was all speed. And, um, you know, I, who I would compare him to in American motorsport, Dale Earnhardt, because Dale Earnhardt had, you know, he, his, Nickname was the Intimidator, and he had a reputation for doing anything it took to win a race, and that's kind of the same style that Ayrton Senna had, um, where if there was a gap, he would go for it. And we saw, and we'll discuss this later. I want to hear your opinions on his clash with uh, Prost in Japan. Um, uh, yeah, because I have a very um, maybe controversial view on it but okay we'll see when we get there we'll get there interesting kind of i'm kind of itching for that but we'll we'll uh, i'm looking for my notes here because it's like i remember as i was watching it like writing in all caps about that but uh we'll get to that when we get to it but you know he just sent a um it, it's crazy how some people just grab the attention you know grab the, the he was this charismatic kid that just burst onto the scene in a way and like you said, like coming out of Brazil and being that guy and being world champion, it was like, um, I don't know. He became a symbol in some ways of like like hope for people from a country that didn't have much at the time. And, you know, he, he yeah. became more than just a race car driver, which is really. Well, he, he gave he gave the people of Brazil something to be proud of. Mm. That's exactly right. Something to be proud of and, and something to look forward to, you know, in his races and in his uh, appearances. And it, it becomes much more than sport, you know. And we don't have that as much in American sports um, because we're, we're so diluted and saturated with stars maybe that yeah. it, it doesn't become so you know, connected on a deep and emotional level. But you could tell he, he loved representing Brazil and they loved him um, from the moment – he burst onto the scene, really. Um, so, I guess let's kind of talk about it. What did you... I'm guessing, knowing you, I'm guessing maybe you didn't love his um, his style. You're talking about Japan. You're alluding to it. Um, do, no, I, I, I actually... I like his style. Um, I think it's, it's what every racer should be to an extent, I guess. Um, you don't want to be doing it to the point where you're jeopardizing safety, but... I have all the respect in the world for a racer who drives his heart out and just drives the wheels off a car every time he's out there. Um, he's always on the limit, always pushing it. And, yeah, there's just 
so much to respect about that and I know he had a lot of clashes and he had a lot of issues with other drivers or or I should say mainly uh Alan Prost but hmm. um yeah, that, I, that rivalry with Prost was really the the they they and you know the documentary frame Prost as the antagonist and, and as you know kind of the <clears throat> the opposite of of Senna and I don't know. I, I feel like after watching it, I should learn more about Prost before I form an opinion on like him. Because, you know, when you watch something like this, they, they frame people in different lights. And I, I just recently was looking at the world champions, and he won, I think, a couple more world championships after uh, Senna's career was over. Yes. And, a, and after, you know, this documentary, he went on to win and become... So it was so fascinating that he was the star. He was the elder statesman, kind of, or, you know, represented in some ways like the establishment. And then Senna comes in and wins these world championships, and it just burns so bright and so fast. And then Prost kind of reestablished himself again. It was just a fascinating dynamic with these two guys. And do you consider Prost to be one of the all-time greats in the terms of F1 history? Does he go down as like a... Magic and Larry, like, are they kind of those type of, you know, like, greatness? Or is he... Yeah, I, I think he's he's absolutely up there in the conversation for, you know, maybe top 10 drivers of all time. Um, and I only say top 10 just because I have no idea where I would put him on the list. There's been so many drivers that you can pick from going from the 1950s to the present day that deserve sure. to be in that top 10. Um I mean, we could talk about like Jackie X or Jackie Stewart, um, Sterling Moss, Juan Manuel Fangio. The the list goes on, and it's decade after decade of great names that are recognizable in the sport. Um, but yeah, Prost is absolutely deserving of being on that list. Um, he's easily one of the most recognizable names in the sport. Um, anybody that really knows even a little bit about the sport recognizes his name or at least when they hear it they think oh i think i've heard that name before in reference to formula one uh so yeah i think i think i go as far as saying that it's um so do you want to talk about what happened i'm just scrolling through my notes here and it's like it is a lot about japan and the it's so we Let's let's start with how he got his start in 1983 racing for the Tolman team, right? Right. Um, kind of a backmarker team. Think of them as kind of like how Williams has been the past few years. They were that kind of a team back in the day. They were not a competitive team, um, but that's usually how guys have to start, right? They have to get their foot in the door at a team and prove themselves and then earn their way into a top car. Um, and that's sort of what Ayrton Senna did where, you know, it, it, they cover it in the documentary, but the race at Monaco in 1983, it was just absolutely pouring rain. And he came in second place at, you know, he was passing former world champions left and right and the only person that finished in front of him was Alan Prost in the McLaren. And if there had been a couple more laps, he probably would have passed him and won the race in a much more inferior car. Right. And it's 
it's incredible. It's in, it kind of underscored the genius that we were going to be seeing in the years to come. Um, and that's absolutely what prompted his move to Lotus uh, the following year. And that's where, in, in the documentary, that's kind of where the shift happens, where he, you're right, it kind of is his moment where um, he put the world on notice that he can do this in, in an inferior car and that he was not afraid to kind of uh, push it into, you're right, it, it was pouring rain. And then didn't he have another race where he crashed out from first place just because he was trying to, I forget what it was. That, but, was, that was also Monaco in 88, I believe. He was like... 15 or 30 seconds ahead of uh, Prost in second place and put it in the wall. Just, you know, just because there was no, some guys are just wired like that. You know, there's no, I think, I think in some ways Max Verstappen has that uh, today. He's got a little bit of that. I know he's always out coasting in front of everybody, but he's got a little bit of that. um, Absolutely he does. I'm going to be, he's trying to beat his last lap every lap. It feels like, you know, he's the the thing, the thing with Senna and I'll, I'll use a famous Prost uh, quote is that he didn't want to just beat me. He wanted to humiliate me. (laughs) That's a competitor. That sounds, yeah. 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 That's somebody who just wants to, you know, he wants perfection every time he's out there you hear that about the michael jordans the tom brady's the tiger woods's you know there is that thing that those guys have that you either have it or you don't and he definitely you know what i mean that that just killer instinct that doesn't matter uh win at all cost mentality which you really um especially in formula one it can be such a potent thing and it can also be um a bit of a wild card you know there's so much that can go wrong if you're not careful, but it's just, I don't know. I, it, there's just a few guys, few guys have that, all that package of the, the charisma. He was such a likable guy too. I mean, from, I know maybe there's some things that weren't as likable about him off the track, but for the most part, just that charisma and that, that talent and that, that, I don't know how to describe it, that, that he's just, racing on a different level right yeah racing yeah exactly something that you either have it or you don't and he certainly uh he was on a he was racing a different game he was playing a different game than everybody else out there and uh it paid off but it was also you know at the end of the day um cost him everything which is so so one thing that they don't show really in the documentary um, that I really wish they had touched on is how much of a human he was. Um, there were, there's multiple times where he would see a car that's crashed on track and he would pull off to the side, jump out of his car, run over to the car that was wrecked and help the driver either get out of the car or make sure he was okay. Um, you know, obviously he had his clashes, but he cared about other drivers. He was a good human that didn't want to see anybody get hurt. Um, and yeah, I think that's something that they should have included in the documentary um, because it's just it's and it's a different side to him other than just seeing how he is in a racer's mentality. Sure, and that's two different. That's two different parts of anybody right i mean you're in that car 
and you see, like you said, you see someone crash or something, if you pull over, that's the human being inside of you. That's the that's the person who you are. And I didn't know that, but to to hear that, you know, you'd like to think you do the same thing because those are people. And at the end of the day, those are your friends and your competitors and the people you spend the most time with. And uh, absolutely, you know, there was something last night I was watching, not to timestamp this too much, but I was watching uh, Chiefs and Bills game. And it was funny. They showed a, a Bills player went down on the sideline with it looked like a concussion or something. And immediately the Chiefs trainer was all over him, like uh, helping yep. him out, like, hey, buddy. I remember seeing that. And it was just one of those moments, the same kind of thing, where it's like, it doesn't matter. Those are people right there. And just uh, just check on your check on other people. You know, it was just, I don't know. There's those moments in sports, and there's moments where everything else kind of shuts down, and it's people out there. Well, yeah, because, I mean, think about, uh, and I'll use your your little story there as part of my analogy, is that, those people are they're trained medical professionals they don't care what team you're on they're gonna if they see you hurt and they're close they're gonna react to it and it's the same way with Senna when he saw somebody crash um and like not getting out of the car uh if it was serious enough he would pull over and and check on you um it's not something you just shut off it's it's always there right um so yeah, I, I I see what your point is. I I also yeah it's it's um, but then there were times we might as well talk about it where I've seen Senna get out of the car, ready to punch people in the face for crashing him out, and uh, taking the well, world he did championship. Some very questionable things. I mean, <laughs> so yeah, so Senna and Prost. I mean, we don't have anything like it right now in F one, right? In terms of like two teammates who are vying for the championship um i think the closest thing we could have that we've had recently is either how verstappen and hamilton were in 2021 or if you're looking for a teammate battle it would easily be uh the mercedes duo of rosberg and hamilton in 2016 when rosberg won the championship right right but nothing and so that was, and they were, what was the story uh, that year? Like, did it come down to the last race of the season? Give me some uh, education. Yeah, it, it, I, I think it came down to the last, in 2016, it came down to the last race of the season. Um, Rosberg had the finish in, I think, like, anything better than fourth or fifth. Um, and Hamilton had to win, or even if Hamilton won, it wouldn't matter. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I I'll I urge you to go back and watch that season at some point, or you and I can delve into that at another time. But I think that's definitely the closest uh, comparison in recent history to what we saw in 1988 between Prost and Senna. That's such an interesting morning on the paddock, isn't it? If your teammate is, uh, I mean, one of you is going to be the world champion this afternoon, and one of you is not, and... Uh, I don't know. I just the whole season you're kind of teammates and you're competing, but then that one morning you wake up and it's like we have one race to decide this, and you know all I have to do is yeah, finish. All four. are off. You have to win. I have to finish top four. But you know everyone's gunning for me. It's just I don't know. I always think yeah. about like what's that? What's that like that morning before the race and when you when you make eye contact with your teammate slash rival for the championship? You know it's got to be out of this world in terms of the tension 
in the awkwardness. You know, I'd be so weird about it. I'd be trying yeah. to like make jokes and stuff, but it wouldn't land because everybody would, you know, I'd be too weird about it. You want to win, but you also don't want to make it seem like you want to, uh, I don't know. It's crazy. It's crazy. Formula One has that, that unique thing where your teammates are also your biggest enemy. I love it. I, it, Yes, that's that's the best way to describe it. Is your closest rival is the guy that's in the same exact car as you. Right, right, and it's your ultimate comparison, and it's the ultimate like. Um, so but at the same time, you're stick. you're pulling for the same goal at the same time too. You wear the same clothes, you travel together. You're like part of the. It's very awkward. It's very awkward. Yeah. Well, you you want the team to do well, but you want to beat your teammate. Of course, of course. So, do you want to? Um, when was so Senna's first world championship was uh let me see that was the year after he had that incident in Japan what was the timeline there with those Prost and Senna they went back to back crash out for the championships right in um let's, so let's walk Senna, through that Senna won Senna won in 88 yeah in 88 1990 and 1991 um all with all with McLaren. Um, was it eighty eight or was it eighty? I think it was eighty eight or eighty nine. Maybe it wasn't eighty eight when Senna had that clash with Prost in, in Japan. There's a there's a few of them. So it's easy to mix well, that's up. the thing. It, it... Um, but yeah, I, I think if i do want to talk about that clash in japan i can't remember exactly what year it was please forgive me but it was i believe it was 89 um and senna had to beat prost to win the championship in that race it was 89 and it was 89 okay all right i'm glad i correct i i'm glad i corrected myself there um but so i to anybody who hasn't seen any film on this or any of the replays, what happens is um, Senna is gaining through one of the last corners up until the final chicane, um, and he's a long way back by any measure, and he just dive bombs on the brakes. Um, there's a Prost left the door open, and Senna invited himself through, um, and they come together and the whole thing was that if Prost doesn't finish the race, Senna's the champion um, and kind of vice versa. What happens is they, they clash, they kind of go off into the, into the runoff road. Um, Prost is out. He can't restart his car. Senna's car keeps going. He takes the, um, the access road, weaves through the, the barricades that are set up like you've seen at uh, Monza is, I guess, the closest comparison for anybody who wants to know what that looks like. Um, and he keeps going. He repairs his car. He goes on. He And he's crown champion. Um, but we have to remember at this point in time, Elon Prost is a French driver. The president of Formula One is a Frenchman. Um so there's a lot of politics involved with this, and I think that's what gets people so irked is that there is a lot of politics around this. And so they said that because Senna had used the the 
runoff area that runoff road um to get back onto the track and he had it backed up and then gone through the chicane and continued that he was disqualified because he didn't actually complete the full race distance right it was an illegal re-entry yes they they called it an illegal re-entry and the thing that bugged me about that was two things well maybe three we'll see where this goes maybe four but Yes, we'll see. We'll see what the number is when we get to the end. But the first thing is that you see cars going through those barricades if they outbreak the corner, and they they know they're not going to make it. But it's the safe way to rejoin. That's the whole reason why it's there. And it was never really a problem. It was never a problem until Senna did it, um, and Balestres view on it he was blessed is the um the president of the of formula one at the point in time and his view on it was that if you need to use that runoff area you are to turn around go back like in the direction that you came from to rejoin the track which effectively means you're driving into cars that are coming at you at head on near 200 miles an hour right um into a braking zone and then rejoin the track that way which is all fine and dandy except for the fact that none of the other drivers that used that runoff area were penalized for doing the same exact thing ron dennis brought this up in a press conference and even showed video of it after the ruling was made and said that it's just not fair it's not right it doesn't make any sense um so there was a lot of politics involved with that Secondly, Prost obviously knew this, so he went right to the stewards after after he got out of his car. He went right to Belastre. He marched um, right in there, like he was going to the oh, tell, yeah, tell yeah. on his tell on his further going he to the principal's office. Yeah, it was terrible. He was on a mission. He knew exactly what he needed to do, um, and that's not anything against Prost. I mean, he was just playing the game. He's just playing his game. Yeah, he he knew the political game better than anybody at that point. I think. Um, now, the big thing for me is that I would say Prost turned in way too early for that chicane. Um, yes, Senna came from a long way back, but if you look at the helicopter shot of the two of them going into that corner, when Prost initiates his turn to the right to A, block Senna, and B, claim that he's turning into the corner. If he continues on that turn, he'd be cutting the first part of the chicane. He wouldn't even be, he, he'd be turning way too early. Um, it, it felt like he knew. So it, yeah. It, it's, yeah, exactly. He, he knew what was happening. He knew the circumstances. He knows that if Senna doesn't finish the race, I'm the champion and vice versa. So I'm going to move my car into a position to block him and create this contact and he I mean that's what we saw when happened and I will never understand the people that say that Prost took the racing line into that corner but if you look at the onboard and the helicopter shot he turns in so early it's it's insane how obvious it is that he just turned right into Senna um, this isn't to defend Senna necessarily. This is just the 
I would do this for any driver that if I saw how early Prost turned in on put any other driver in center seat. So do you I think would say the exact same thing? Do you think it's something where Prost wakes up in the morning and says, "If it comes down to it, this is how it's going to go down," or do you think it happens in a thousandth of a second where he says, "You know what." Like, you know what I mean? You think it's a split second decision or he decided, you know, the night before if this is this is the situation. I think it's a bit of both. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like we saw like the next year when Prost was at Ferrari and it was like the same kind of circumstance where Senna knew that if he if if Prost doesn't finish the race, I win the championship. If I even if I don't finish. And he did um, almost the same thing, right? Didn't he turn in yeah. like pretty yeah, much the same just, thing? He he put his car in a position where he was like, "All right, well, I'm here. If I get hit, I get hit." You know, right? Um, <laughs> and there was also a lot of controversy around that race as well because I think you've gotten up to speed enough to know what the clean and clean uh, the clean side and the dirty side of the track is. Oh yeah, right? oh yeah. That's where they moved. So, Did they move? Is that where they moved pole position? Yes. Yeah, they pole position is religiously on the clean side of the track where it's on the racing line. You have the most grip you've earned pole position. Why would you not be on the clean side of the track? That's the whole, that's the whole point. Exactly. But the night before, after Senna claimed pole position, the night before the race, they switched pole to the opposite side of the track. So that Prost was on the clean side of the track and Senna was on the dirty side. That's crazy. I mean, that's like nonsense, really. it's it's so it was blatant favoritism and blatant playing of the rules to give another driver um a bit of an advantage and Senna was like all right well i'll do this myself then i guess and he took both of them out and he was champion so i mean it's crazy i mean that's the one thing when that that stuff happens that's when they lose a little credibility you know when you just Pull a stunt like moving pole position. That's like a Vince McMahon type of thing, you know, like the night before the WrestleMania, we're going to make it a crazy, you know, just like <laughs> change the rules and make it a cage match. It's like, what? What are you talking yeah. about? This is not right. I'm here for a traditional race and you're doing some crazy. Yeah, it, it doesn't feel right when, when I don't know. I couldn't imagine how that would go down today in today's world, how yeah. quickly they'd get shut down with trying to, you know, something like that. For Stappen gets pole and they move him over to the dirty side of the track and yeah, imagine the up the uproar <laughs> that would cause. Like imagine imagine it's twenty twenty one in the final race and they say, oh, we're gonna Max Verstappen got pole position or Lewis Hamilton got pole position. We're gonna move pole position to the dirty side of the track. Yeah, and the guy that's in second place, who's your championship rival, is now on the clean side of the track for the start the in, the backlash uh, would the be optimum line yeah it would be insane swift <laughs> and severe yeah it would be insane it'd be rioting um, outside of monza yeah it'd be, you know like yeah it'd be it'd be crazy so yeah i i don't know i don't understand but, why so much i guess like you said like that's and i guess that's what i mean that prost was more of the establishment and senna was the outsider because it seemed like at every yes. turn they tried to give him a little, you know, give him the scroogey. And maybe that's, again, the documentary portraying things a certain way. But it did seem yeah, like when, right. when they could. They always had to pump up the drama a little bit, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. But, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of fun um, watching. But to be honest, um, I kind of knew how this was going to go. But I, like you said, you watched this with your girlfriend. I watched it with uh, my wife. And she, I mean, we both were in tears at the end of it. And um, well, let's let's not get there quite yet. You don't want to get there quite yet. We still have to. Well, no. Well, we can't just talk about all the controversy and then skip over the fact of how ridiculously talented of a driver he was. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Then let's uh, let's go over that. It's just one of these. I've got the I've got the documentary playing in the background here, and it's just it is an emotional, like you it said, is. It, it's it, it's an emotional roller coaster because it really draws you in. But I think what makes it even better is that they show you how talented of a driver he was um i mean you saw the clips of him wrestling that that lotus night i think it was lotus 98t or 96t um around adelaide yeah and that thing is wiggling all over the place (laughs) it is just on the edge of control the entire lap he he just had this ability to get a car on the razor's edge and just keep it there. That's what I have for right an entire for an entire lap. I have that right in my um, notes that he really pushed right to that limit. He had that feel for for getting the absolute most, like more than people thought was possible out of a car. Um, what you have to go and watch is his onboard lap of Monaco from '88. I mean, it is. It's one of the most spectacular onboards you'll ever see. Just it's full commitment, one hand on the wheel the majority of the time because they're still using an H pattern shifter at that point in time. That's crazy. Um, and you know he's just wrestling this thing around Monaco. Um, That's and kind of there's beautiful. another, there's another. It's 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 an incredible <laughs> clip. I'll I'll send it to you after we're done here. Yeah, please um, do. Yeah, but. Another thing is just to, to tack on to his driving style is he had a very unique way of applying the throttle because in that day there's a huge amount of turbo lag with these cars. And coming out of even a medium speed corner, you don't want to be caught out by that turbo lag. You want to be full power right as soon as you get your foot down, right? Right, right. Well, he had this method where he would go through one of these corners and you could hear him basically stamping on the throttle, like using his foot and just like stamping on it repeatedly. And And he's just, he's doing that while he's going through a corner. He's still breaking, but he's doing that to keep the boost pressure up. Oh, wow. So that once he is on the throttle, it's the boost is already where it needs to be. And there's no lag. And right. he just goes. Right. Wow. So he had this ingenious way of getting around the turbo lag. And, you know, it it was, you know, I'm not going to say it was 100% effective at every single track at every single corner, but I'm sure it helped to a degree at the majority of them. Sure. Uh, and that's what I mean, too. Like, he was playing a different game. He was doing things just uniquely and differently and getting more out of the cars than the people that designed them really thought was possible. Um so that's amazing. So one thing I always kind of wonder, and you wonder with any sport, but like if you took Senna, you know, at his peak, put him in a 2024, 2023 F1 car, is he competitive? Is he, the, you know? I, I think he would be. I think it would be something to see. I mean, I what's, what's sad is we never got to see him 
competing against Schumacher for that long. Um, right. Because of the tragic events that happened just about, I think, like 30 years, 30, 40 years ago now. It was, it was in 94, so what is that, 30? Yeah, 30 years. Yeah, yeah, 30. Sorry, folks, my math is horrible. <laughs> There's a reason why I'm doing this now. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, we're actually. It's actually going to be the thirtieth anniversary of his of his passing in May, um, so I'm sure there'll be something done for him at Imola this year. Oh, sure, sure. So, was that like uh, Schumacher? When what was his first year where he was Michael Schumacher? You know, not just. Uh... Uh, well, he started. He had his first race with Jordan in 1991. Uh, and then after that race, Benetton picked him up and made him one of their drivers. Well, and that's why we're gonna we're gonna do the Michael Schumacher episode pretty soon yes. too, because that's what a Netflix that's a Netflix documentary. Yep, that's a Netflix one. I've I got like halfway through it a little while ago, and I gotta go back and just start from the beginning. But it's from what I watched, it's just an incredible documentary. But I stopped just at the point where he was beginning his Ferrari days, and uh, I'm ready for that one. Yeah, and I'm sure, especially for you, that's like, uh, I don't know, watching watching some of the good stuff, you know, your all-time favorite team, favorite not to, driver. Not to make this like a religious thing, but he was kind of like the messiah for <laughs> Ferrari, you know. He's like, when you when you think of Ferrari, you think of Michael Schumacher in the early 2000s. Um, you think of the Red Baron, but I mean, that's, for another, that's for another episode. That'll but, be soon. Yeah, why don't we, um, let's talk about that weekend. Um was like the worst There's weekend a lot of, in F1 history. It was history, a horrible right? weekend for the sport. Um, I mean, you had Rubens Barrichello. He was a, a young Brazilian driver that Senna was fairly close to. He had a horrible accident, but he was able to, he was okay. You know, he was hurt a little bit, but he was okay. Uh, and then you had Roland Ratzenberger on Saturday who I I don't even know the details of the accident aside from the fact that he was effectively ejected from the car you know it's just it's just a horrible accident and yeah and, terrible. You know, after after those two terrible accidents you'd think that nobody would want to race the next day or you know I understand that they know the risks that are involved and it can happen to anybody at any time regardless where, where was that, this you know it, this was at Imola in right. 93 right, right. okay 94 94 sorry Imola 94 and so what what happened I mean it just seems like too much all at once to be coincidence you know like um yes w- w- what was going on at that track? that weekend does anyone i mean have they ever really um put it together like why why that track that weekend was so deadly was so dangerous well the the thing with i'll i'll touch on senna's accident in a second here but they were all at different areas of the track but imola's nature is very fast and very flowing um very high speed high-speed corners, quick changes of the direction where one little bobble and you can upset the car and send you into a wall uh, at 160 miles an hour, 170 miles an hour. Right. And it's, you know, it's just, it was a very dangerous track because they didn't have 
the first corner that they do now where it's a chicane that goes into another left-hander that leads on to that short straight. Right. It was just one continuous corner. And so you'd be going through there pretty freaking fast. Uh, right. Yeah. And I can imagine. there was a, there was a bump in the middle of the racing line. And from all the things that I've read and heard and just absorbed about this accident with Senna is that there was a issue with the steering column and I guess when he hit this bump just the right way and it broke the steering column and that was that because if if you if you look he he hits this bump and it just goes straight there's no steering input or anything there's no correction it's just straight and i mean there's nothing you can do um right you're at the mercy of and the force yeah, yeah you're at the mercy of what you're going towards pretty much it's terrible and yeah it, it is horrible because i i mean you remember from the documentary where uh sid Watkins says that had the piece of suspension assembly hit him an inch like what is it six inches lower or six inches higher something he would tiny away. right it was just one of the, he would have gotten out of the car and walked away because it doesn't it doesn't look like that bad of an accident you know it's really but but then again you think of how dale earnhardt that's exactly where i was daytona going in 2001 where it looked like a pretty simple crash he'd had way worse crashes before right you know, he'd been flipping flipping down the front stretch of dart uh, at talladega and really hard impacts of the wall but and so the one that killed him looked so simple it, it really did that's it's the the similarity is eerie when it comes between you know those two and you said Earnhardt earlier and you really put that in my head like uh geez even their crashes because Dale Earnhardt you're right I remember when that happened and watching it I couldn't believe that that I was a, watching that with my grandfather really and yep. so would you watch did you watch a lot of racing was that part of uh, yeah, I, I watched a I watched a ton of racing growing up uh, with him and with dad. So were you watching that live? That uh, yes, Dale Earnhardt? I was. Oh, wow. I was watching it live. I I remember I remember vividly exactly where we were, exactly how the TV was positioned in the room. Jeez. Um, yeah, I I remember it very vividly. That's one of those days. I mean, I wasn't even a NASCAR racing fan then, and it's one of those days that just. Yeah, I mean, you lose a but, star like that. But you, you, know? you know that it's somebody big in the sport that just had something terrible happen to them. It's going to change the sport forever, you know? And and to get back to Senna, it was very much that for the sport because losing F1 losing Ayrton Senna was, the at the time, the equivalent of losing Dale Earnhardt in NASCAR, where... He was kind of the figurehead of the sport. He was the living legend, the one that everybody looked up to and everybody was gunning for. Sure. And you thought was invincible. And then this crash happens and you, you're you just – I mean, you saw the faces on everybody in that documentary. They were just stunned. Stunned. Like they, they, couldn't, they, could, they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe what had just happened. And especially they, they – um... 
they asked him if he still wanted to race. I mean, nobody would have blamed blamed anybody oh, that to, part kills me. to take the weekend off, to take the race off, to reevaluate things, and yeah, to get in that yeah. car. And you know, like we said, he was one of those guys that was he was going to push it. He he was not the type that was going to say no because something happened. He he understood the risks and he he yeah he was willing to to approach them every day. And a big part of his um life was his faith it seemed like and he seemed like he almost knew yeah that was a huge part of it yeah and he seemed like he was in touch and he understood what he was doing and what he was you know taking his life into his hands every day but also representing so much to so many people it was just a fascinating um mindset for a guy that's just very complicated and very yeah um, i don't know i mean i can't well the, the the two eerie things for me from that day were how Senna, he he read the passage, or he had a dream. I can't remember exactly which one it was, but he said that God was going to give him the greatest of all gifts, hmm. and that's God Himself. Jeez. And then before the race, Sid Watkins, who is a close friend of Senna, said, "Why don't we just why don't we retire?" Won't we just both retire? We can go fishing. That's right. Go and fishing, he said. We'll never have to worry about any of this stuff ever again. Jeez. And Senna just said, I, I have to. I have to do this. It's interesting when you think about fate and you think about these things that, it, yeah, it, it's terrible. But it's almost like could he have existed without the world of, of Formula One and doing, you know, some people right. seem like they were they were – not to get all philosophical with it, but like some people seem like they were put here to achieve something and do something. And then when that's over, they're gone. You know, it happens with, you know, music, right. with musicians or people who are like the best of the best sometimes don't last the longest. It's, it's really crazy and sad how that works out. And I don't know. It's just the thing. The thing that got me. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not trying to cut you off. No, no. Um, the thing that got me the most at the end of that movie was. Like I I know that it's coming, you know, because I do have a knowledge of Formula One. I so I know what to expect. It's like watching Ford versus Ferrari and knowing that story before watching the movie. Right. And then it gets to the scene at the end where uh, Ken Miles dies in the crash, and you just go, you're just thinking, oh no, here it comes, here it comes. But right, waiting for it. What I wasn't yeah. ready for was the reception of the fans when he when his body was brought back to Brazil um, and just the hundreds of thousands of people that were lining the streets as his procession was making its way by and the number of people that came to pay their respects and you know Prost was there um, Ron Dennis was there Frank Williams was there just so many figureheads in the sport were there. Right, right. Not to mention all the people that he had in his personal life, you know. And it's just, it's incredible to see that somebody, somebody from any country doing something in a sport that means that much to the people back home. Right. Because like you said earlier, he was proud to be Brazilian. Some of the, like some other people would hide it, but he was 
avid about waving the Brazilian flag any chance he got. Yeah, it wasn't just a city or a team, a whole country, a whole, you know, a whole people just had one person. I mean, truly, in a lot of ways, he was there. You know, they, you had Senna and was Pele, was he Brazilian before? Like, I mean, once every 20, 30 years, the whole country gets one person to get behind and to believe in. And like, you know, it's just. We don't in America or you know wherever you're listening, it's probably not like that. It's probably you've got you know a team from each city and a city, you know your college teams and your pro teams and your. But um, I I don't know what that's like to have one um, you know if we had one American athlete that we all just loved so much that you know the country would be heartbroken if they died. It's not like that here, and I can't think of anybody. I mean, Muhammad Ali in his day, but he was a controversial figure. There's, it's just so fascinating. You know, maybe Dale Earnhardt was that, and you know, at the tippy top, he he. It's rare that somebody um, leaves when they're still at the top of their game, and and or passes away like that. You know, like Earnhardt was one, but you think of other tragic, like Kobe Bryant had long retired, and that was tragedy. But he wasn't, you know, an active still chasing world championships um it's just terrible it's just i don't even know just for a whole a whole country of people to love and support this guy and then for having to just be taken away one day i can't imagine i just can't imagine a whole country's worth of sadness and yeah. grief and just terrible but also how much joy was, he brought them too over the years yeah, you know absolutely agreed with that I mean, and you saw it in all the different videos that they were showing in that documentary where everybody's happy and he always seems to be calm and at peace and he's fearlessly himself at all times. Right, right. Yeah, I don't mean to be getting down here at the end of the podcast. I'm just, I'm watching in the background. They're going through all the funeral stuff right now and it's just so sad. It's just terrible. But at the end of the day... I would say that this was uh, a great subject to learn about. Like we said earlier, whether you're a big fan or you're just starting out, this is one of the, you know, foundational, not maybe not foundational, but it's a story in Formula One that is worth knowing. The Ayrton Senna story. It's got twists and turns and, and uh, ups and downs. And at the end of the day, it's a man who left a, a huge mark in Formula One and in a lot of places in the world. So I was fascinated with it. I, you know, I, it's one of those things you become a fan of someone by watching and learning more about them. And now it's going to start me trying to learn more about his contemporaries. And it just opens up this whole world of, of F1, you know, like my wife has been watching a lot of, for some reason, NBA documentaries. And she feels like she understands like the world of 1980s NBA really well. Like she knows the Celtics and the Lakers and the Pistons and young Michael Jordan. And it's like, I kind of want to do that with formula one. I want to kind of like, for some reason, just learn about each era, you know, in big chunks. It's, it's fun. It's like a new subject for me. You know, it's all these, yeah. these characters and these people. And, um, I appreciate having, it'll, having it'll you talk drag about you in. Well, yeah. And then, you know, he kind of like this story kind of opens the door, like to the Michael Schumacher story. It leads right into the next era of greatness Yep. And it's you know, and then the one that we've got to do after Schumacher is I think it's a Disney Plus series, the one about uh, Braun GP that's hosted oh, by right. Keanu Reeves. Right, right. I've heard about um, that. Yeah, because that that story is 
phenomenal as well um, about that team. So what is the, the line of succession when it comes to, like, if you can almost make a line, like, to use pro basketball again from, like, Magic and Bird to Jordan to Kobe to LeBron. Like, what, what would you say? Um, we're in the Verstappen era, right? And we had Hamilton yeah, before Yeah, we're that. in the Verstappen era. Yep. So to go from Senna. Yeah. I would go from Senna. You had kind of a mix of Schumacher, Graham Hill, Damon Hill. Yeah, maybe not Graham Hill, Damon Hill. <sighs> um, <laughs> I the, the both of them both raced in Formula One. Um, let's see, we had Mika Hakkinen, Schumacher. Was it really uh, the era of see. Schumacher though, like the '90s and 2000s? Was that really like the Michael Schumacher reign? 2000 to 2004, nobody else won the championship except for Schumacher. Really? So um, yeah. And then you know, also in the '90s, you have Villeneuve and PKA. Um, then we, after the Schumacher era, you have Alonzo win it a couple of years in a row. And then it was Riken and Hamilton, Riken and Hamilton, Button, Vettel for four years, Hamilton, Hamilton, Rosberg, Hamilton until twenty one. And now we're at the dawn of the Verstappen. Now we're in the middle of the Verstappen <laughs> age. <laughs> oh boy, maybe not. Hope springs eternal. It's twenty twenty four, so. We've got new yes, new cars. We've got car launches right around right around the corner here. That's the thing. That's the thing. So before we wrap up, what do you think? What are you looking forward to in the car launches, in general? What do you oh, kind of take away from these these? Is it more of a hype thing than anything else? Is it? Yeah, I think it's definitely more of a hype thing, just to kind of get people uh, amped up for the start of the season and showcase the cars a little bit. They're Obviously, they're not going to show all their secrets on these reveals. They're not going to have every every single piece on these cars that is going to be um, performance. No, they're going to show enhancing. nothing. They're going to show as little as possible, oh, yeah. really, right? But if if it's if it's something they think is going to give them an edge, they'll take it off the car. Right. Yeah. The one thing they'll and do put is something some generic bodywork on there. The one, yeah, and they'll give you ooh like a new livery. We changed a little bit of yeah, you know, right, but. I mean, and I like that. I like seeing what they look like, but it doesn't do much for um, what they're going to do on the track. But it is exciting, though. It's like almost like getting new uniforms or something. You know, it's, uh, it's the start of school. I don't know. Everyone's going in with a fresh pair of clothes, new haircut, trying to put last year behind us at least because uh, that was a long season. But I'm optimistic. I think 2024 is going to be a good year for Formula One for this podcast. And uh, I don't know. You got anything else you want to touch on before we get on out of here uh just two things real quick yeah. uh i did forget to mention nigel mansell in that eras of the 90s of the champions of the 90s uh i was i was trying to think of his name and i said graham hill uh it's <laughs> nigel mansell uh he's he's kind of personified by his big bushy mustache and always wearing uh what i would call a scally cap um and then and he was He's an he's a character, um, and then two more things on Senna is that I had the year he started wrong. That was in '84. He was in British Formula Three in '83. 
So just wanted to correct myself on that before we get too far. And, you know, I want to put out factual information and the best information possible. And if I need to correct myself, I have no problem doing that. No, I think it's, I think it's good that we, we check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. And that's a great way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I definitely would encourage anyone who listens to this to check out that podcast or that, uh, that documentary. Um, and, I mean, I, I think it was perfect for, like, if you have a flight, if you want to learn, because it's, it's, you're learning a new story, plus it's it's a good story to, um, I don't know, it was just great. I thought it was good. Everyone I've talked to liked it, and um, I'm looking forward to all of this, all this new media for 2024 for my F1 knowledge, you know, and um, I like having your depth of knowledge and my curiosity. I think it's a good combination, so I'm looking forward to it. And I think we're going to do Schumacher next, or well, tomorrow or soon, we're going to record the uh, 2024 season preview, kind of. We got some news in the Formula One world. We'll have that out for you guys early next week. And um, I don't know. I think we are good. If you're good, Connor, I'm going to... I think we're good. I'm going to say goodbye to the people out there. We'll talk to you next time, and uh, take care of yourselves. See you guys. Talk to you next time. This has been a Funcast production. Our theme song is Sport Rock Trailer by Audio Coffee Music. Check them out at audiocoffee.net. The F1 Funcast is not affiliated with Formula One or professional motorsport in any way, and this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Contact us at f1funcast at gmail.com.